0: Hello and welcome to the Churchology Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Holmes. Today on the show, we're talking to Rachel Joy Welcher about her latest book, Talking Back to Purity Culture, Rediscovering Faithful Christian Sexuality. Hey, before we jump into today's conversation, I wanna thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Here we are, we're at episode 26. It's exciting to just be able to bring these episodes out every single week. And I hope they encourage you, bless you, And I want to ask you, if so, share it on social media. If you're on Facebook, share it. Twitter, share it. Instagram, let everybody know about the podcast so that they can jump in the conversation and be a part of it. Hey, make sure that you subscribe to the Churchology Podcast. You'll never miss an episode. And if you didn't know, we have a YouTube channel. We have a YouTube channel where you can watch every single interview that we do. Just go to YouTube, look up Churchology podcast. Today we're talking to Rachel Joy Welcher. Rachel is a poet, she's also a writer, she's a columnist and editor at Fathom Magazine. And in November of last year, she released her book, Talking Back to Purity Culture, Rediscovering Faithful Christian Sexuality, and that's what we talk about today. Make sure to pick up the book, the links are in the show notes. Sit back, relax, enjoy this interview with Rachel Joy Welcher on the Churchology Podcast. All right, well, today on the show, we are excited to have Rachel Joy Welcher with us today. Rachel, how are you?
1: Doing great. So good to be here.
0: Rachel, you have just released a brand new book, Talking Back to Purity Culture. And I would love for you to start off, and this is probably a really big question, but just for anybody that's listening or watching, and they, they are thinking, what is purity culture? Right. Uh, what is purity culture?
1: <laughs> well, so... There's been um, a purity culture in, in different decades um, and in different denominations and religions, but my book focuses on modern purity culture, late 1990s, early 2000s, um, in evangelical American um, purity culture. And it's, it's really, it was a reaction to this fear of STDs and teen pregnancy coming out of the 70s and 80s. Um, And it was really defined by a push to get teenagers to commit to abstinence, whether through purity rings or pledges, um, that they would stick to staying a virgin until marriage. And that was really what it was all about. Um, There were a lot of other messages mixed up in that that I deal with in my book, but that's sort of a, a short summary of what purity culture was.
0: Yeah, I gave my life to Christ, senior in high school, 1996.
1: All right. Yeah.
0: And so, right in the front of your book, in the introduction, it starts talking about "I kiss dating goodbye" and all of these things. And man, I just, I just went back there. I remember yep. all of those things. True love waits. The whole thing.
1: That was and, all going on at that time. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And for anybody that hears that uh, and and thinks, okay, well, is is there is there something wrong with purity culture? What were some negative things that that came out of that? What 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 are some some things that maybe came out of purity culture that unintended consequences potentially, but right. but were there nonetheless?
1: Well, so I think it's important that I just state that, you know, I wrote this book not to critique scripture or yeah, God, absolutely. but to revisit our own fallible interpretations of his word. And any time that Christians, you know, start a kind of a sub-Christian culture. We're bound to ha- uh, go beyond scripture in some ways, and then looking back, revisit it and say, "How can we do better moving forward?" And so I I write out of a love, a deep love for the church, and a desire for her to be more like Christ. And so um, my desire isn't to um, critique purity itself, but the way that we taught it um, had some major problems. And you know, one of the the big problems with purity culture is It switched the motivation from glorifying God and pursuing obedience for His glory to um, doing these things so that you can get things. So the message to teenagers was, if you commit to abstinence, then you'll get married at a young age, you'll have great sex, and you'll have children with ease. And so it became sort of a prosperity gospel within purity culture. And, And we know that that's not biblical. First of all, those things aren't a promise to Christians. And um, we don't obey God so that we can get good gifts. We obey God as worship for what he's done for us. And so what happened is we kind of created this generation that had expectations that if they did certain things, they would get certain things. The other side of it was those who'd made mistakes sexually or had had been um, sexually sinned against felt as though they couldn't have a good marriage um and so they felt like used goods or as though they didn't have as much to offer a future spouse because of these messages. So those are just a few things, but there's a whole lot that I unpack in the book.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And can you share a little bit of of your of your story and sure. and maybe what motivated you uh to write it?
1: Sure. Yeah, so it was a few things. Um I have worked with teenagers as a high school English teacher for about a decade. And so just having students talk to me about their lives and hearing a lot of shame related to their sexuality um, and feeling just a burden for how do we talk to um, young people about this God created good, our sexuality is a God created good that we can use sinfully um, or use for his glory. And then I also had um, multiple friends who've been sexually abused and hearing the way that they talked about their worth Um, as a result of the purity culture messages they'd heard really devastated me. I realized that some of these messages had communicated to precious image bearers of God that they somehow were lacking because of their sexual history. Um, But then from a personal standpoint, I read all the books and I met um, a man in Bible college who I married and, you know, we took our time. He was my first kiss. I quote unquote followed all the rules. But um, about four years into our marriage, he decided he was no longer going to be a Christian and he divorced me. Hmm. And so at age uh, 29, I was this divorced pastor's kid um, who moved home and just felt like I, it felt like broken promises, um, not just in my own marriage, but what I'd been promised from all the books that if I, you know, followed the rules, I'd have a good marriage. And here I was divorced. And so I had to grapple with whether or not those promises were actually from scripture and from God, or if they had um, just come down from these books. So when it came time, when I went back to school, after I was divorced, I I went back to get my master's in theology at St. Andrews in Scotland. And when it came time to pick a dissertation topic, I decided to dig into these books of my youth and to figure out which messages were actually biblical and which messages weren't.
0: Yeah. And, and does that go into, you, you, I think you referenced it a moment ago, but but in your book, you've got this line that uh, you say, what happens to the message of sexual purity when it's taught apart from Christ?
1: Right, exactly.
0: And so ha, how did that happen? And, and maybe even you, you gave some examples there a moment ago, but as a pastor, I can think of numerous examples. And tell me if this is what you mean. I can think of numerous examples of just talking to, uh, couples in our church that, that wanted children. And maybe somebody mm-hmm. had told them that God had promised that. And, right. and, and at, where is that in scripture and, and what that does to their faith? And, oh, and so many goodness. examples, like is, is that, is that one of the results or things that came out of purity culture? Is that what you're talking about? How this gets separated from Christ?
1: Right. Oh, for sure. So I think that backing up to, to your original question, how did this happen? part of it was government-funded abstinence education. What happened is that some of these groups, like Silver Ring Thing and True Love Waits, they were invited into secular high schools, um, but they weren't allowed to keep the Jesus part. They could only talk about the abstinence part. So what happened is that I think the message became more just stay a virgin, and and the gospel was removed. The fact that Jesus is the source of our purity, the fact that we can have sexual self-control in Christ, Um, The fact that we are whole and worthy because Christ died for us, you know, the gospel was removed. And so then it becomes a very works-based thing. And um, so many of the people I interviewed said that they wore their purity rings like a badge of honor. You know, there was a lot of um, spiritual pride there when maybe in their personal life, their mind, or maybe with pornography, they were actually sinning, but they could look pure on the outside. You know, they were following the rules of purity culture. And so Um, I think Christ was really removed, but then going to your other question of, you know, say a Christian couple who can't figure out why they can't have kids when they followed all the rules. Yeah. Well, that goes back to these, these promises that, that purity culture made. And it really did. When I went back and read the books, one of the books said that if you stayed a virgin until marriage, you would have children with ease. And that if you didn't, you would probably get an STD that would make you infertile. And I'm not saying that that neither of those things can happen, that there are couples who um, stayed pure and are having children now, and there are probably, you know, people who um, made mistakes and got an STD, but we know that it doesn't always have that cause and effect. And um, so I think that what happens is Christians are saying, did I, am I being punished by God? Hmm. But God never actually promised it. And so I saw a lot of people that I interviewed really struggling with their faith because of these broken purity culture promises. So for those who might be listening and saying, why is she critiquing purity culture? It's a good thing. Well, because there are people who are actually leaving the church because they think God lied to them, but it was purity culture that lied to them. And so it is worth untangling these messages.
0: Yeah. I think it's so interesting in your book, how you make the connection between these kind of promises and the prosperity gospel. You know a lot of times we just kind of have the prosperity gospel is in this in this corner where it's all about mm-hmm. finances, material things right but, but the prosperity gospel is is just simply the idea that if I do this, then God has to give me this exactly and that can show up in all kinds of different areas in our lives. Why do you think the church has such i don't know if the word is temptation or desire to to give give people these kind of promises, hey God doesn 't give you this promise, but but I want to give you this promise. I want you to know it 's going to work out the way you you know happily ever mm-hmm. after. Why do you think we have that desire or temptation?
1: I think that we don 't trust that the gospel is winsome enough, and we we often think we have to dangle extra carrots. So you know when it came to these teenagers, um, i I call it these the, the sexy carrots that youth leaders would dangle in front of them. I think the motivation was pure. Okay, let's help these kids pursue God's sexual ethic. But then we went above scripture. We went beyond, not above, we went beyond scripture and said, okay, the only way you could get a teenager to commit to this is if you promise them things, right? That they're gonna have great sex on their honeymoon night. Um, That was a huge promise to teenagers that like, um, you know, don't have sex. And then all of a sudden you turn on a light switch and in marriage, it's, you know, gonna be Nirvana. these were promises that I think came out of maybe an anxiety that just sharing the gospel wasn't enough. Hmm. Um, and so, and I think it was very fear-based as well. Like, okay, we have to get these kids to stop having sex. And so we have to kind of make up our own message. And these, um, purity conferences, they use utilized pop culture. Um, they had like rock concerts and just all sorts of interesting methods to try to get kids to, um, there's a whole book called Making Chastity Sexy by Christine Gardner. And she studied the movement and said that it was actually really interesting because they sold abstinence using sex, which is just kind of a mind blowing, but it actually, you know, that's really what happened is that these people would say, you're going to get to have sex and it's going to be amazing, but you just have to wait. Whereas scripture says, we obey God because we love him scripture doesn't say everyone's going to get married and have sex because that's not what it's about. That's not what this life is about. That's not what being a Christian is about, but purity culture made it all about marriage, sex, and children. Um, And and then those three things definitely became an idol.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Do you think that, that a lot of this goes back to maybe the church just has a wrong idea of where discipleship starts so so the discipleship you know in purity culture the example that you're that you're giving discipleship starts in behavior don't do this rather than the gospel rather than christ do you think that that at its core a lot of this is a discipleship issue
1: i think you're exactly right i think that's a really great observation that you know we think we have to start with the rules right Mm. creating a list of extra biblical rules and um controlling behavior but you know one thing i point out is that We could, in youth group at that time, we could create um, chaste Pharisees instead of caring about creating imperfect disciples. Like, what good is it to get a kid to commit to abstinence if they don't even know who Jesus is? Um, You know, what is it that, why are we so obsessed with this idea of kind of this external holiness without the spiritual life, you know, behind it? Um, When we think about our own children, obviously we, we want them to follow God's law. But more than that, we want them to know who Christ is, and we want them to know that when they do sin, because they will, that there's forgiveness in Christ. Purity culture, you know, it's all or nothing. It's like you do these things, you get these things. You don't do these things, and you're you're a used car, a half-eaten cake, chewed gum. There were so many illustrations that were just devastating. Um, scripture never talks about image bears of God that way. We we are um, whole and worthy because because of God, not because of our own you know, good works. And we are saved, not because of our own good works, but because of the grace of Christ. purity culture did not emphasize the gospel.
0: Yeah. Wow. That's such a powerful uh, statement that you just made a moment ago. I know it's in your book as well, but when the, the statement about chaste Pharisees, exactly how you, I can't remember exactly exactly how you said it. What is that statement again? Can you repeat that that one more time?
1: If we would rather create chaste Pharisees than imperfect disciples, we wow. have, you know, our priorities wrong.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the things when, when I listen to, uh, t- tell me if you agree with this. And um, when I listen to the way that culture uh, talks about sexuality, it seems to wrap it in identity. Mm-hmm. This is who you are. It's, it's, it's at the core of who you are. But when I hear the, ch- the church talk about it, in a lot of ways, it's simply action and behavior.
1: Mm -hmm. how,
0: how important do you think identity is when we think about the vision that scripture gives us about sexuality?
1: That's a, that's a complex question right there. Because (laughs) that's a, that's a really big question. I mean, you could have a whole podcast episode just about that, but it's a great one. I mean, so purity culture made virginity the identity. So um, if you were a virgin then you had this great gift to offer your future mm. spouse. If you weren't a virgin, you were less than. So in Christian purity culture, um, there, you were still defined by your sexuality. That was still your identity. Like for instance, for women, if a, a woman was defined by um, how pure she was before marriage and then how much she satisfies her husband in, in marriage. So like either way, women were reduced to their sexuality. What I would say is I'd step back and say, okay, is sexuality important? Well, yes. Sexuality is a God created good. It existed before the fall, right? Um, it's not this post-fall thing that happened. It's, it's somehow our sexuality is, is part of the way we image God. So it is important. It is wrapped up in who we are as people, but it is not the, the one thing that defines us. Now, culture absolutely um, has has made it seem as though our sexuality is the defining characteristic, and I think purity culture did that in its own way. But Scripture says that our identity is in Christ, and who we are as physical beings, um, as you know, um, souls wrapped in bodies, all those things matter, and all those things are important. So we don't need to de-emphasize our sexuality, but to put our sexuality as as the you know. Um, the face of who we are is also a wrong emphasis. Um, I feel like there's so much we could talk about within that topic, but that's kind of a summary.
0: (laughs) Yeah. What do you think it does to somebody when we do say your identity, the the face of it is your sexuality? What do you think the impact is that that can have on somebody?
1: I think it's dehumanizing. And I know that people would argue with me there, but I think it's dehumanizing to say, for instance, you know, purity culture said that men were sort of just defined by their sex drive. Well, there's so, there's so much more to men than that. And that's a very dehumanizing thing. Or that women are defined by their sexual function, whether they're, you know, their purity or, um, being a sexual outlet in marriage, that's dehumanizing. Women are so much more than that. So I think that when we put that at the forefront, we are, um, we're de-emphasizing other aspects of who we are as people and as image bearers, and that's never a good thing. Um, so we shouldn't de-emphasize our sexuality, but we shouldn't overemphasize it either, because it's just one aspect of who we are as as humans.
0: Yeah. How do you think? How do you think purity culture has impacted some uh, things in the church, like the relationship between men and mm.
1: women? Oh, goodness. Well, uh, Amy Bird wrote an interesting book a couple years back called Why Can't We Be Friends? And she, she does a great job addressing this. But I briefly talk about it in my book that purity culture sort of set men and women up to believe that, like to be scared of each other, because we're constantly somehow on the, always on the verge of sexual sin. That's how purity culture sort of paints us. And even though the goal of purity culture was to get people to stay pure, I think what it ended up doing is making us feel like we don't actually have self-control. Whereas scripture says that if you are in Christ, we are no longer slaves to sin. So we absolutely have the ability to say no to sin, whether we're a man, a woman, um, whatever the temptation is in Christ, we have that, we've been given that power. Um, But purity culture talked to men about women as though women were just obstacles to purity or outlets in marriage. And so then women just are, again, it goes back to what you were just talking about. They're defined by their sexual function rather than um, as sisters in Christ, co-heirs of the kingdom. And then men um, were talked about as though they just were constantly on the verge of sin. And so it became somewhat of a self-fulfilling prophecy. I remember one of the men I interviewed said that when he first became a Christian, he went to the Christian bookstore to see what it meant to be a man of God. And every book was about one topic lust Mm -hmm. and so you know that really that we when we tell men that that's what defines them it dehumanizes them in their own eyes and women start to think about them about them that way so I remember as a teenager just feeling like um no matter what I wore how much I tried to cover up I might be causing my brother to stumble and somehow leading them into sin and there was just this anxiety there um And then in church, you know, instead of men and women being brothers and sisters and being part of a body together, you see that there's just this constant like, oh man, we don't want to, we don't want to mess up so we can't even talk. And I think that that's, that's such a loss that we're experiencing in the church right now where we've over-sexualized all our interactions. I'm not saying we shouldn't be wise. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have boundaries. Absolutely. But like, for instance, the Billy Graham rule, to say that every man needs to follow the Billy Graham rule. That's not how this works. We are all individuals with different struggles, different situations and temptations, and it's not a one-size-fits-all when it comes to extra-biblical rules, right? So um, I think in the church, we've really suffered when it comes to male-female friendships because we've assumed that we cannot interact without falling into sexual sin.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, as I was reading your book, I, I think that I, you've got a really powerful section in your book where you talk about um, where you talk about men and and that churches should teach men to see that, that the women in their churches, they're sisters in Christ and, and it's, and, and loving your neighbor in that way. And, and, uh, I don't think I've ever heard that taught. <laughs>
1: Isn't that devastating? It is. Because, because that's what's in scripture, right? It says, men, you're to treat women as sisters in all purity. Yeah. So the Bible starts with that. Like the Bible starts with, you need to view women rightly, not figure out how to avoid them. Um, there was a book that was really popular called Every Man's Battle uh, yeah. and the advice in that book, and, I'm, and I know it's helps a lot of men, but the thing is, is that the advice in that book is all about avoiding women and how they're, how they present these stumbling blocks. And it, there's nothing in there about the dignity of women as image bearers of God or sisters. If we start with this idea of women as just potential stumbling blocks, then it's going to be really hard for men to humanize them. And you will have a harder time sinning against someone that you have dignified in your mind. And so we have to start with that dignity, with the Imago Dei um, before we move on to all these other strategies for fighting lust. Um, I think we really made a mistake by starting with lust instead of starting with um, the fact that we're image bearers of God.
0: Yeah. I think another thing that, that, that I hear a lot is, um, I hear a lot of people talk about how the goal of the Christian life is to have a godly marriage or family, that the goal of it, the goal of the entire Christian life is to have a godly family marriage or, or the the goal is to be a godly man, a certain kind of man, a Mm -hmm. a, a godly certain kind of woman. Um, have we made an idol out of these things?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I think you, I think that, um, The way you just framed the question answers it too, right? Yes. And as a pastor, I'm sure you've seen this. Somehow we've decided that those who are married with children are um, sort of, they're the goal. And not only that, they're the people who get promoted to ministry and are viewed as spiritually wise, which is so interesting. I know so many incredibly godly educated singles who um, are frequently passed over for, you know, ministry roles in church because there's this assumption that you don't truly understand life or the Bible until you're married or until you have kids. Um, it's just a strange thing that has happened when you know our Savior Himself was single <laughs> and, wow. and childless, right? Yeah. Um, and so, I definitely think we've made an idol out of marriage and out of having children. And and the the ramification of that is that those who aren't in that category, those who are single or same-sex attracted and celibate, or divorced or widows they do not fit in and they feel pushed to the margins of our churches.
0: Yeah. And, and, and obviously, you know, if, if, if God has it in his plan, you know, for marriage and family and all of those things, those are good gifts. But but I think think that your book is, is just so helpful that we need to put these things in their proper place. Right. Uh, And, and it's, it's just so easy to separate those things from, from Jesus, from their real place. Yeah. Yeah. So you talked about, uh, you just now referenced, um, you know, same-sex attraction. How has, how has purity culture um, influenced the way the church talks about LGBTQ issues? Mm. Um, and, and what are some ways maybe to move forward in a better direction?
1: Mm. I mean, that's such an important question. I, purity culture was just so completely silent on the issue. So the, the kids in the crowd at the Purity event who were struggling with same-sex attraction, what is it that they heard? They heard that Purity has um, a a finish line and it's marriage. Mm. And what are they supposed to think? Okay, so either they need to suddenly become attracted to the opposite gender so they can get married, or um, there's no, like, it's just this ominous thing. So all these other kids are being promised that if you wait, then you'll get to have sex. But those who were struggling with same-sex attraction, there was no category for them. There was no message of hope. There was no acknowledgement of their particular struggle. Um, I feel like for years, we've had a don't ask, don't tell policy in the church, like this unspoken thing of if that's your struggle, just, okay, you know, deal with it on your own or, um, but you don't need to talk about it. And it's, it makes us feel uncomfortable. And um, what we've done is we've caused precious Brothers and sisters in Christ to struggle alone and in the dark, and um, you know we we have these acceptable sins that we allow people to talk about in small group, but if someone who's same sex attracted needs prayer to just cling to Christ um, and obey Him in celibacy, um, we just sit around and feel awkward, I think, and don't know what to say, and and part of it, um, oh Sam, I'm blanking on his name. He writes for the Gospel Coalition, Sam Albrey, Sam Albrey wrote a book and he talked about the fact that um, we don't know what to do with celibacy. Mm -hmm. Like it makes us uncomfortable because we've made an idol out of sex. So we think that a sexless life is not um, a true existence. We've bought into that secular cultural idea. And also we as a church have like forgotten that celibacy is a high calling. And so we don't know what to do with those. So, so I think often um, those who are same-sex attracted are encouraged to get married, you know, to the opposite gender. And maybe that's the right encouragement, but maybe it's not the right encouragement for them. Maybe they need to continue to pursue the Lord in celibacy, and they need to know that they have the support, that they have a family that they can talk to um, in, within the church. And so I think moving forward, we need to remove the stigma and, and, and make it less taboo. To talk about our sexual struggles because it's part of being human. Um, these things are in scripture. If we don't, if we can't talk about them, then we are struggling in the dark, and sin breeds in the darkness.
0: Hmm. Yeah. What are some ways that churches can go about that? You even asked that question. I think in the last chapter of your book, you you always have discussion questions. You even asked that question: right. How can churches become safe places? Right. To talk about sexuality and and mm-hmm. sexual struggles and sins, things like that. How, do you have any ideas for that, tips on how that could happen?
1: So, I mean, I have this vision in the book of um, a small group that is so diverse. Um, you know, you've got a widow and a same-sex attracted teenager and a married couple and a single and someone who's divorced, and they're all talking about these things together. I mean, that's sort of my vision, and, and it, I don't know um, exactly how we get there other than just diving in and, and being willing to feel uncomfortable. Um, Also recognizing that talking about sexuality doesn't have to be sexy. So I think there's this idea that like, if we talk about it, that someone's going to stumble. But if you read my book, you know, there's a way to talk about these things and to take seriously what God says and to be compassionate. And um, it's not like this titillating conversation. So I think that we have to realize that it's okay to talk about these things in mixed company and with people from different age groups, For too long we would separate the youth to talk about it or separate the marrieds and so then we're not learning from one another um the singles don't know what marrieds are going through they think that um it's only difficult to pursue purity as a single uh the marrieds are dealing with all sorts of things and they think that you know maybe single people have it easier we need to recognize that we have these common longings these common struggles these common um things that define us and we're all different, but we can pray for one another and we can come together and be a family. Um, But one other really practical thing that I just wanna throw out there, um, based on some conversations with friends, when it comes to same-sex attraction, those who are same-sex attracted, if they hear other Christians making derogatory comments about those who are gay, um, Mm -hmm. making fun of them, they will not share their struggle with you. Wow. And so that's just something I wanna put out there is that it can be really easy to mock um, other people who are different than you, but they're listening, and if that 's their particular struggle they 're going to know you 're not a safe person to confide in
0: yeah, yeah, what would you say to the church leader or the person that's listening and 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 they're thinking oh man i just I just don't think that we talk about those things we don't we don't talk about those things uh, <laughs> you know, in our church in that kind of environment. Uh, maybe a way to phrase the question is this way what's the danger in not talking about it
1: Oh my goodness, I think that the danger um, for our children is that if they're not hearing it um, through the whole council of scripture, through the church, through their parents, then they're going to um, find the answers to their questions in other ways hmm. on the internet, which can often lead them to pornography through their friends. So that's one thing. But also the danger is that we, um, we don't understand where our sexuality fits in with the Christian life we become disembodied, you know, um, it becomes this separate thing that then we deal with in secular ways or in, in private ways rather than having um, the body of Christ be our support and our guide in it. So it's, it's very dangerous to skip over this aspect of our humanity.
0: Yeah. And what, what's maybe a good way to start these kind of conversations or or this environment, so you mentioned the small group, um, mm-hmm. do you want to just put a small group out there or or what what 's a way to start these things um, in in the church
1: well, not to self promote at all, but I mean, I wrote the book thinking about this question yeah. um, and and that 's why i I had those questions at the end of the chapters because I know that these conversations are really hard to start, so I asked questions like what were you taught to believe about biblical masculinity? And my goal is, you know, thinking about a a diverse group of people talking about that question together. So, I mean, one option is read my book with other people, read another book with other people. Um, Sometimes if you start with a book, it takes some of the pressure off because you're like, the author's asking, not me, you know? (laughs) Um, And then you can grow from there and it can become more comfortable. But the truth is starting these conversations is going to be difficult in the beginning, but it's so worth it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, Rachel, I, I'm so thankful for your book. It's a gift to the church. And uh, man, if if people that are watching, listening, if they wanted to connect with you online, uh, where could they do that at?
1: Um, You know, I tweet a lot. So um, I'm at Rachel J. Welcher and I'm also an editor at Fathom magazine. So you can see my articles there and you can find me all over the internet. And my book is um, I think it's sold pretty much everywhere books are sold. So buy it at your favorite store.
0: <laughs> yeah. And we'll have all the links to everything, your book and all great. of it in the show notes so that people can find it. Rachel, this has been great. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk today.
1: Absolutely. It was an honor. Thank you. Thanks.
0: What a powerful idea that when we separate obedience from Christ, We've lost the gospel. When we make obedience the end rather than Jesus, we've lost Christianity. And so, Rachel, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk. Make sure to check out the show notes. In the show notes, you can find links to where you can connect with Rachel on social media, her website, as well as where you can pick up the book. I'd love to know what you thought about today's episode. Wherever you're at online, odds are really good that. The Churchology podcast is there as well. So let's connect online. Make sure to hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts. Go ahead, hit the subscribe button. We put new episodes out every single Tuesday. And if you haven't done so yet, leave us a rating and review. When you do that, it helps more people find the podcast. Next week, we're back with a brand new episode. Next week, we're talking to to Todd Bolsinger. Todd released his latest book called Tempered Resilience." how leaders are formed in the crucible of change. And I can't wait for you to hear this conversation. It's been a year of change, longer than a year now of change. And so I can't wait to share that episode with you. It'll be out next Tuesday. So make sure to subscribe so you don't miss it. Thanks for listening to the Churchology Podcast.